0: Luke. One of the things that uh, Scott and, and I and, and most other pastors do when we start a new series, a new book, is we'll take a look at the book and we'll read through it a couple times and what we're trying to figure out is what did Luke have to say? Now with Luke, it's, it, it's, uh, it's pretty expansive. Luke actually wrote more in the New Testament than any other writer. He's got like 30 or 35 more verses than Paul has. And so when Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote Acts. It was all one book. Uh, There were two parts of the book. The first part described Jesus Christ and his ministry and his life, and the second part described the, the beginning, the foundation of the first century church. So somewhere along the line, it was broken up into two volumes, but it was supposed to be one long letter. Uh, so I told you when we started Malachi that I wanted to kind of walk with us through uh, the end of the Old Testament and the introduction of the New Testament. Um, and so we went from Malachi. Now we're going to start Luke. And, and we, we've done our work. We've looked at it. And uh, we found out that th- this was written probably sometime. There's always a debate over when these things were written and, and who wrote them. We're pretty sure Luke wrote this sometime in the early 60s A.D. There's no mention of the temple being sacked in A.D. 70. Uh, uh, So it's near the end of of Paul's tenure as an apostle. Uh, Luke was probably in Rome when he wrote it. Uh, I mean, Paul tells us that right near the end of his career that everybody's deserted him, but Luke is with them. And so Luke was very close to Paul. And so he's written this letter, and the question is, why did he write the letter? And, and that's what we look for when we, when we read the book over and over again. What thread holds this book together? What is the primary theme of this book? If we understand what Luke wanted to say, then we, then we understand that everything he says in the letter has something to do with that main message. So, there are a couple of minor themes that run through Luke. Uh, one of them is his emphasis on women. This was uh, unusual for the first century culture in the Mideast, uh, but Luke wants to make clear those women that helped Jesus in his ministry that that were uh, a, an aid to him. Uh, some of them uh, w- were people that funded his ministry, so Luke points these things out. And that would have been a little bit unusual for uh, for the first century, but Uh, Luke's got it there, and he wants to make sure that we all understand that that the gospel is for everyone. Um, One one of the other threads is the gospel is for everyone. So Luke speaks in language that would appeal to Gentiles, to non-believers, and he wants everybody to know that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well. Of course, scripture tells us that the, the gospel would go to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles, and Luke's kind of walking that out, but there's a primary reason that Luke wrote the book, and and you know, when we do these studies, in particular if it's a long book, it's kind of hard to try and figure out how it holds together, but Luke makes it easy for us, so he tells us right up front why he's writing this gospel, and that starts with chapter one, and, and I, I can just hear, you know, Luke has been through some incredible things, He's gotten to know most of the apostles. He's heard firsthand testimony of everything that's gone on. And he said, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and the things that have been accomplished among them are world-changing. This is the pivotal moment of history, and Luke is there to record it. And he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, these are the people he hung around with, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, I heard it from the first-hand eyewitnesses. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? We have no idea probably a Greek maybe he might be a a Jewish convert he's probably saved as we get into the letter we find out there are some indications that he's written to somebody who's familiar with the gospel but we don't know who Theophilus is but we do know why Luke wrote the letter because in verse 4 it says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so everything that Luke has shared with, with Theophilus, he wants Theophilus to understand that he can be certain of these things. So Luke is going to make his case for the certainty of the truth of the gospel, the certainty of who Jesus Christ is, the certainty of all of the teaching that's gone forth from Christ and through the, the, the gospels. So our sermon title is, You Can Be Certain. And that's our truth for today as well. We live in an age where it's hard to be certain of anything. We live in a time where we hear that the truth is arbitrary. What is true for you uh, might not be true for me. Uh, We live in a time where people will take the scriptures and say, well, there's a lot of different meanings we can have in this. Let's pick the one that suits us the most. So Luke says, you can't be certain. And you can be certain of the things that are written here in the Scripture. You can be certain of the things that have been taught. And you can be certain because I know the people that were there. And they've shared all this with me. So at a time of uncertainty, we find out that we can be certain. So I'm going to call this series, "The you know, God's Love for Everyone. And we'll see as, as we go forward that that's fully intentional on behalf of Luke. Luke, but we want to kind of set the stage for it. We want to kind of set the the scene for the beginning of this incredible story, and that happens in the first 25 verses. We've already heard Luke's introduction. We've already heard it's written to Theophilus. We've already heard that it's written so that Theophilus can be certain of the things that he's heard, and then we get into this, this beginning scenario and we have four settings here in this scenario with Zachariah and Elizabeth and the first one is the premise Uh, again that's the setting verse 5 through 7 the second one is an incredible promise and that's in verse 8 through 17 but we find out that there's a problem in verse 18 through 23 Uh, but then there's proof Of the validity of the promise that's been given in verse 24 and 25. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at at the premise, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, names are important to God. And I just want to point that out because Elizabeth's name means the oath of God, the promise of God, the word of God. So right off, we start out with one of the characters in this scenario is named the word of God. And so we've got the priest, uh, we've got a heritage, he's uh, of the division of Abiah, that kind of comes into play in just a little bit. And he's got a wife, and they were both righteous before God. Verse 6 says, I want you to understand what this verse means. This, this scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God speaking to and through Luke. And the first thing he says about these people is that they're righteous. They're blameless. Now, this does not mean that they're perfect. Whenever we see scripture describing somebody as righteous, it means they're righteous in a human way. Uh, they probably still have some faults, but God proclaims these people righteous, and they are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. These are good people. It's a priest. It's his wife. We're going to find out their age, so they would be well-respected in the community. They would be looked upon as models of behavior. They would be looked upon as icons of the priesthood. People that people might want to emulate. Except for verse 7. Which says, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. Now again, when we look at this in the culture. We see that barrenness is a sign to the Jews of the disfavor of God. And it, this, is not, this is not just a little bit of disfavor. This, this is an indication that something's wrong somewhere. So they have this respected position. God says they're righteous and blameless, but they have no children. And the way this would play out is there's whispers in the streets. They walk, they walk down the road and people are pointing at them and snickering. This is a shameful thing to have no children. The bloodlines were everything for the Jews. And if you had no children, there was no way to maintain the bloodline. And it was seen as a disgrace. So as righteous and blameless as they are, they live in shame. And the news gets worse because we find out that they both were advanced in years. Now what that means is that Elizabeth is beyond the childbearing age. There's no hope of a child. This speaks well of, of Zachariah because Zachariah is still with her. Zachariah had a, a case for putting her away, for divorcing her because she couldn't have a children. So, Zechariah is not out trying to find a concubine or another wife or disgracing his wife even further by putting her away. He stands beside her. This is a solid couple. They love each other. But Elizabeth is barren. Well, there are other barren women in Scripture. We look at the Old Testament, we see that Sarah was barren when the angels come and say, look, there's going to be a child. Okay? Sarah has Isaac. We see Rachel is barren before Joseph is born. We see that Samson's mother, Manoah, was barren before Samson was born. We see that Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren and cried out to God for a baby. So look at the people we're talking about. Isaac, Joseph, Samson, Samuel. So when we hear a barren woman who is righteous and blameless by the lips of God himself, we should kind of perk up our ears and say, something's going on here because God uses barren women to bring forth children that are pivotal to the history of Israel. So our story starts with this barren woman. And we should be paying close attention because every indication is that if Elizabeth has a baby, it will be important to Israel's heritage, maybe important to the entire world. So our premise is, we got a priest and his wife, they're righteous and blameless, they're devout, but they're barren. Now comes this incredible promise. It starts in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty. Now, this is the way this worked. Uh, there were a number of divisions and they would rotate in and out of uh, duties in the temple. Uh, they would train for this and get ready for it. And uh, so, so Zechariah's order is up. His division is up for duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, that sounds pretty neat. But when you understand the background of what's going on here, it's really something else. There were over 18,000 priests that served in the temple. And they would come up by order. And not everybody got to burn the incense. This was a high privilege. They were taken by lot. So, Zechariah has been training for this moment all of his life. Whenever you got in to burn the incense, it was the only time you did it. There were 17,999 people waiting behind you to take their, their spot. So this is the pinnacle of Zachariah's career. This is what he's in the priesthood for. And when they draw the lot, he gets the lot. He's probably overwhelmed by emotion. He's probably praising God for the opportunity to honor God in this way. It's a really big moment. And the whole multitude of the people, it says in verse 10, were praying outside at the hour of the incense. Now, incense was burned twice a day. Once at dawn and another time at dusk. And generally at dusk, the people would gather and pray. They would pray for the nation. Uh, They would pray for themselves. They would pray for the priests. It was a solemn gathering. They were serious about doing this. It wasn't just the priests going through the motions and burning some incense. This was their thanks to God. This was their gratitude for who they were as a people. This was their their appreciation for having the land that they're in and having a temple in the presence of God among us. So this was a huge gathering. And Zechariah was getting ready to go in here. Now, here's, here's what it looked like. Let me, let me just give you an idea. This temple grounds. What you don't see on this diagram is the outer courts, which are the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were welcome there to hear the word of God. But you have the court of the women, that big space to the right. And then in the, the, the portion to the left, uh, bordered by the dark square, uh, that would be the court of the men. The men would go in there to, to worship God. And inside there were two holy places. There was a curtain uh, before what they call the holy place. That's where the table of showbread was. That's where the altar of the incense was. Then there was another curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. The only person that could go into the holy of holies was the chief priest. And he went there infrequently. But the other priests would go into this holy place twice a day. There were four of them that would go in there. And, so, and, and that has some significance to our story as well, but we'll get to that in just a second. So, Zechariah goes in, it's the high point of his career, uh, the people are outside praying, meanwhile, in the region, there is this huge anticipation that God is doing something. They've been waiting for 400 years since Malachi prophesied that there would be a forerunner before the Messiah. And there are some people say there might have been as many as 400 people in that mid-eastern region claiming to be the Messiah. None of them can back up their claims. But the anticipation is high. So when these people gather to prayer, it's not just to pray the priest through the thing. They're waiting for God to do something. They're expecting something to happen. There is an air of anticipation about everything that they do. And Zechariah walks in to the holy place and verse 11 says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The right side is the side of favor." Now, you got to think about what's going through Zechariah's mind. This is it. What's going to happen when I walk in here? And he walks in, and there's a heavenly apparition. What do we make of this? Everybody outside thinks God is going to do something. Is it now? Why is the angel there? You know, when we have these, these heavenly apparitions, when we have, a, a, in the Old Testament, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ prior to the New Testament, or a theophany, an appearance of God, or just a heavenly visitation, the, the visitation is there for one of two reasons. Either they're going to bring blessing, or they're going to bring judgment. And Zechariah doesn't know which one is coming. All he knows is there's not supposed to be anybody in here but me right now. And he walks in, and he sees the angel, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, again, God has not spoken for 400 years. The expectation of an eschatological an end times event is very high. The angel is there. He's either got good news or he's got judgment, and Zechariah is terrified. Matter of fact, the, the uh, Christian Standard Bible says he was terrified and overcome with fear. Now, I love this. I love this because people are fond of telling me, I can't wait to see Jesus. When I get to heaven, I'm going to run and jump into his arms. He's going to hug me and stroke my head and tell me how much he loves me. And, you know, there's enough truth to that, that it's believable. But I got to tell you something. There is no scriptural incidence of somebody running and jumping into the lap of an angel or a, a, a heavenly being. They always fall down with fear. Now, we scripture's is not clear about it, but I believe that the reason they fall down with fear is they are in the presence of holiness. They're in the presence of absolute perfection. They're in the presence of unbridled truth. And they begin to understand their own lack of holiness. They begin to understand that their lack of worthiness. They fall down on their face, not not out of terrified fear. Zechariah is terrified because he doesn't know what's happening yet. But I think they fall down on their face because they finally understand grace. They finally understand unmerited favor. I'm not worthy of this. I've done nothing to earn this, yet here's, here's this heavenly being standing in front of me. Thank you, God, because I deserve being destroyed at this moment because of the sinful person that I am. So Zechariah's reaction is pretty similar to what we see in other scripture. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer, your prayer has been heard. What prayer? We don't know. But we know that Zechariah was a man of prayer. We know he was a descendant of the Aaronic priesthood. We know that he's an older guy, doesn't have any children, so we can assume that some of his prayers were for a child. We can also assume that a lot of his prayers were for the nation of Israel, for the coming of the Messiah. So whatever this angel is talking about, the first thing out of his mouth is God has heard your prayer." You just hear the heartbeat starting to accelerate. God has heard. And then the angel says, And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. There's a whole lot happening here. God has heard your prayer, Zechariah. And Elizabeth is going to give you a son. And it's significant that Zechariah hears that his prayer is going to be answered, but even more significant that the angel says, here's what the name is going to be, John. Now, the name means God is gracious. That's my name. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But more importantly, in the Jewish culture, the father got to pick the name. It was the father's responsibility. Do you see what the angel just told Zechariah? Yes, you're going to be the earthly father, but your father in heaven has chosen this name. He's going to be a man of God. He's going to be set apart by God. He's going to be blessed by God. And you will have joy and gladness, a singular you, you, Zechariah, will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Uh, the The word for many here can mean a lot of things. I think it means nations. I think the angel is saying... You're going to have a son, Zechariah, and you're going to take great joy in this, and you're going to be glad that the son was born. But the nations are going to rejoice at the birth of this son, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and it will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's wombs. saying, this is going to be a man of God, chosen by God, set aside by God. It's going to bless you and bring you joy and bring a blessing to the entire world, so make sure you raise him right. Make sure you teach him the right habits. Keep him away from the things that would would foul him. And then we see this in verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, we just finished Malachi. And chapter 4 of Malachi uses these same words. Malachi is all about the coming messenger that is going to turn the hearts of the fathers towards God. All of the language is there. Here's the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what the Jewish people have been waiting 400 years for. The moment is upon them. Malachi's prophecy about the coming messenger is being fulfilled right here in this holy place between Zechariah and the angel. And the promise is that a forerunner is going to appear and he's going to come out of barrenness, out of nothing, and that God will bring joy and gladness and that the nations will rejoice in turn and he will be great before the Lord. It's an incredible prophecy. It is the beginning of the pivotal point of all history for the entire world. And Zechariah is the first one to hear it. A priest who prepared all of his life to be here in this spot. And when he walks in, there's an angel. He says, Zechariah, everything changes from here on. Your life will no longer be the same. And by the way, neither were Israels. Wow. It's an incredible promise. But there's a problem. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how do I know this? I mean, you could see the shrug. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, that's, that's kind of the essence of what's going on here. Zechariah says, how, how do I know this is true? And, and then he does something that a lot of us have a tendency to do. He thinks maybe the angels missed something. Maybe the angel misunderstands the situation. Maybe something happened when they drew the lots and the wrong guy got put in. So he wants to explain this to the angel. He said, I'm not sure I'm the right guy. I don't think you understand my situation. For I am an old man, the scripture says, and my wife is advanced in years. Don't you understand, Mr. Angel? My wife Elizabeth is beyond childbearing age. And I'm no spring chicken myself. I don't think you got the right guy. Whoever we we ever find ourselves when we 're explaining things to God, we read a promise in the scriptures, we look up and we go, "Well, that can't be for me, God. let me explain my situation. We have a prayer that maybe isn't answered the way we expect it to be, and we start explaining to God why it should be answered the way we ex- i mean we as human beings, we have that tendency to make sure that God knows all the details so they can make a wise decision. And Zachariah is doubting the decision that's made here. You don't get it, Angel. My wife's too old. We're too old to have kids. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're ready for them. So, what, what Zachariah is saying here give me a sign how can I know how can I be certain that this is going to happen now I, I just want you to think about the situation for a second Zachariah is having the moment of his lifetime he's in the holy place he's going to burn the incense and there's an angel talking to him he walks in, and there's an angel who knows his name, knows the situation, says, God has heard your prayers, and he's going to answer them, and Zachariah goes, well, I need a sign. And you can see the angel going, Pfft. what kind of sign do you need other than an angel showing up and having a chat with you? But Zachariah is not alone. I mean, these people uh, that, that were husbands of the barren women, they asked for it. Aaron Uh, Abraham asked for a sign because he said they were too old. Gideon had his fleece. Uh, I mean, God says, Hey Gideon, I want you to take a very small number of guys and go over here and defeat this army and and I'm going to give you the victory. And Gideon goes, Oh, really? And God says, Yes. And and Gideon says, Well, I'm going to lay a fleece out. And if there's water on one side of the fleece and not on the and all these machinations he went through, to question God. folks be careful when you say I'm going to throw a fleece out because I I think Gideon was fortunate that God didn't smite him you know how I love that word smite okay because he was questioning God God said I'm going to give you the victory he said oh really if you're going to give me a victory do this if you're going to give me the victory do that over there the one sign wasn't enough he needed two So Gideon's fleece is a story of God's grace and his immutable plan going forth, not a story of how to find out whether or not God means what he says. So Gideon wanted a sign, and if you know Gideon's story, things didn't turn out so well for him. Hezekiah wanted a sign, kind of the same thing. King Ahaz wanted a sign. God said to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put God to the test. And God goes, boy, this is not going to be pleasant for you, Ahaz. Here's the one guy that God says, ask me for a sign. He says, no. So, this is part of of Jewish history. Zechariah is kind of conforming to this. So he says, how am I going to know? Show me something that can make me certain that this is going to happen. I don't think you understand all the details, angel. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. He might as well have said, do you know who I am? I, now, the Jews had a tradition that there were either somewhere between four and seven angels in the presence of God at all times. Uh, so, depending on what Zachariah taught and what he embraced. He, this angel is either one of four or one of seven angels that stand in the presence of God. The angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. God sent me to give you this promise, Zechariah." What more sign do you need? But since you want a sign, I'm going to give you one. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is a beautiful sign. First off, it kind of teaches Zachariah to be careful what he asked for. You know, we have to be careful how we approach God. We have to be careful what we ask God for. Uh, I, when, when Kelly and I were first married, and I had just gotten saved, and Kelly had recommitted her life, I was working for fast food, and I was on this rotating schedule. Kelly was working for Avis Rent-A-Car down in Alexandria. She was working nine to five. And I thought, I'm going to try this prayer thing out. And I went, God, I want to be, I want to have more time with my wife. Will you fix it so that I don't have to work evenings? And I believe God would answer that prayer. He did. Two days later, I got fired. So, and, and, and I go to her, I go there I and say, Kelly, you know, I was praying for God to find a way to, to make us have time together in the evening. She goes, well, you got what you asked for, didn't you? Okay, so, so we got to be careful what we ask of God. And we've got to be careful not to put expectations upon him. Zechariah just learned that lesson. But there's something beautiful in here as well. Because what, what, what the angel says to Zechariah is, you know, you're going to be mute until the baby's born. The, the promise is still in there. That The promise that I gave you is good. God is good and faithful and true. And because you had doubt, because you had a moment of, of reluctance and a moment of uncertainty, God's not going to punish you for it, but there will be some consequence. The baby will come. And since you wanted a sign, you're not going to be able to talk until he does. Now this was significant. Because that, there, there were actually, there, there was a team of four priests that would go into the temple uh, for this. And, and of those four priests, there were a number of duties they all had to do. Uh, but the one who would burn the incense was in there by himself four times during his tenure in, in, in the holy place. Once to remove the ashes that were burned from the incense before. Uh, another time to relight the candles because the candles would go out from time to time. Have you ever been to one of those wedding ceremonies where they do the the unity candle? And the two people, the the two mothers set up a candle on either side, they light it. And then when the couple has said their vows, they light one candle out of the two. Every now and then the candles go out. And the reaction is always the same. Everybody looks at me and goes, the candles went out. You know, sometimes candles go out. (laughs) It doesn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything in the temple. Sometimes the candles that lit in there went out. So the, the Zechariah would have been in there by himself to straighten the candles and relight them if they need to be relit. And then he would go in by himself again with a, a cinder uh, box and put cinders in it. And the last time he was in there by himself, he would spread the incense on the altar. So we're assuming that all this happens that last time he's in there by himself and the people are outside they've been praying there's this anticipation and you know with each priest that goes in there it's the same anticipation is this a moment is this a moment is this a moment uh, they're faithful they're devout in what they're doing uh, and they're waiting for Zachariah to come out and Zachariah is in there for a long time so they begin wondering what's going on so they're waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple so when he comes out it's easy for them to see that some transformation has taken place. Zechariah has gone through some experience here. Not only can he not talk, there's something about his visage, something about the way he's acting that indicates to them that something is going on. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, it's probably another two weeks or so while he was in there with with the descendants of Abiah. So the problem was that Zechariah questioned God. He had his moment of doubt. Now, Zechariah knew the word. He knew the scriptures. He knew the history of the Jewish people. He knew that he was experiencing a supernatural event. But the mistake that Zechariah fell victim to was he allowed his circumstances to overcome what the Word of God said. He allowed his situation to bear weight in a problem that God was solving for him. So, by God's grace, there's proof. There's proof of the promise. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden. Why did she keep herself hidden? We don't know. There's a lot that we don't know about this passage. She might have been self-conscious. She might have been waiting to see if the baby was viable. I don't think that was the case. Some people think it is. But I think there was no doubt in Elizabeth's mind. We don't know why she was waiting. But we know that she knew that God was being good to his promise because of what she says in verse 25. Thus, the Lord has done for me. She said, and, and look at the words she uses. It's not the Lord is doing. Thus, th- this the Lord has done for me. He's given us a child. Now, here, here's the first indication of Luke's respect for women. Because we have this scenario in which you have this priest who's well-respected who has his moment of doubt and his wife who has no doubt whatsoever. She's embraced it with everything. God has already accomplished this in me. And in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach from among people, she uses Rachel's words. When Rachel finds out that she's with child, right out of Genesis chapter 30, Elizabeth is saying, God has done this before, and look, he's doing it again. And he's making good on his promise, and I'm walking in the promise and receiving it for all that it's worth. The proof of God's promise now resides in Elizabeth's womb. So we have this this premise, the priest and the wife, The barren wife, they're advanced in age, they're devout people. They're given a promise that out of nothing, out of barrenness, God will give them a child. And he would be the forerunner of the Messiah and would be a blessing to the nations. Except there's one problem, and it's Zechariah wants a sign. He wants a sign other than an angel appearing to him and giving him these promises. He gets one, but it's not what he expected. But then comes the proof. Elizabeth is with child. Now there's two major threads that run through this passage. It should have some meaning to us. because I mean, the scripture is written for us. Amen? Uh, It's all good for for teaching and for reproof and counseling and all those things that God designed it for. So this isn't just a quaint story about two people that existed 2,500 years ago. So what's in here for us? Two major things. Number one, God heard Zechariah's prayer. Those prayers had gone up for 400 years. And I'm sure there were times when people wondered whether or not God was there at all. Have, have we ever had that moment where we felt like God didn't hear our prayers? But Scripture promises us that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for those people that have repented of their sins, confessed their sins, turned away from Him and turned towards Him and believe that He's the only Son of God, God promises us that He is an advocate to the Father for us. So there's no time when Jesus is preoccupied and says, I'm sorry, what did you say? I was busy listening over here. Could you repeat that prayer again? God hears our prayers. We know that because He heard Zachariah's. Zachariah didn't even have the Holy Spirit in him, and we do. So He heard Zachariah's prayer, and the answer was joy. The answer was that there would be joy and gladness, because God was dealing with the source of Zacharias and Elizabeth's guilt and shame. See, when we lift that prayer up to the Father to receive eternal life through His only Son, Jesus Christ, we're promised joy. We're promised relief from our guilt and shame. This is an aspect of the character and nature of God. So we have this big thing going on, the God's plan of redemption is happening, it's happening right there in the life of, of Zachariah and Elizabeth, it has implications to us, but we also have this personal aspect to what's going on with Elizabeth. Elizabeth has been touched spiritually, she's been changed, she's been transformed, she's been made into a new creature, Somebody who couldn't have a baby now has a baby. And God has taken away her reproach. See, when we come to Christ, we're made into new creatures. And God takes away our reproach. So there's two things we can hold on to, but now the stage is set. It's just a preview of what's to come. The baby's going to be John the Baptist, and the forerunner. Yeah, he's the forerunner for Jesus Christ, who's our advocate, who hears our prayers, who takes who takes everything personally to uh, between us and Him, and takes away the reproach of everybody of those who call on Him. And we can be certain of this. See, Elizabeth has the baby in the womb for her certainty. And we've got something much better, brothers and sisters. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is the evidence of Christ in us, who is the deposit on every promise that God has made for those people who follow him. And our guarantee, we can be certain because the Spirit is in us. Well, what does that feel like, John? I said, I don't know, but you'll know it when you know it. There's a soft whisper that comes to us a whisper of holiness, a whisper of godliness, a whisper of Scripture that draws us closer and closer to God. And the more we respond to that, the closer we get to Him. And God said that is His seal on us. And the promise to Zechariah was good, but i got to tell you something, the promise that we have is better because we're promised something for all eternity, not just the time that He's silent. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for, for the story of a man and a woman somewhat flawed. Have hearts after you, Father. We thank you for that image, Lord. But we thank you most of all for your faithfulness and your truthfulness, Father. For those times when we're not faithful. We thank you that Zachariah still receives the promise even though he died even though he asked for a sign. We pray, Father, you would move among us in this holiday season, Lord, that, that we would be vessels of the mercy and compassion that we have received. Lord, that our eyes would be upon you, and that our prayers would be for each other, for this church, and for the body of Christ. In Jesus' name.